Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. You are tuned in to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast and this is Brett Hawes. Um, today, I gotta say, I'm super, super excited to release this podcast episode. Um, it, I feel it was one of the best interviews I've done and I also feel like it is so timely and we left no stone unturned in, in this podcast. Um, so my guest today is Alex Meyer. Uh, Alex serves as a board member for the Children's Health Defense with Robert F. Kennedy and donates her time for limited scope projects like a recent COVID vaccine article and video production. She's the president of the New California chapter of Children's Health Defense. And in the 1990s, at the age of 29, she ran a worldwide research group at Apple until six vaccines physically disabled her and gave her brain damage. Um, some of the symptoms included encephalopathy, encephalitis, nausea, chronic fatigue, arthritis, digestive issues, and insomnia. Uh, 20 plus years later, Alex manages a recovery of about 80%. An award-winning blogger since 2005, she's published almost 900 articles, mostly on the topics of health and medicine. Uh, from 2008 to 2018, Alex worked part-time as a health strategist with clients suffering complex health issues. In 2018, she retired from health consulting to devote her time to vac the vaccine movement, and Alex actually grew up in the Oscar Mayer family. Uh, she's a graduate of Duke University and the Keller Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University. So I am super, super excited for today's show. And, um, you know, the topic might actually seem a little dark, um, but, you know, there's so much confusion right now and so much talk about the COVID-19 vaccines that are getting rolled out. And what's interesting is we actually recorded this episode about a week ago, and um, a lot of the stuff that we mention is now actually happening, which is, is somewhat frightening, I think. Uh, so just to kind of encapsulate what we talk about on today's show, we talk about the COVID-19 vaccines. We focus specifically on Pfizer and Moderna. Um, because those are obviously front and center. Um, these are now getting approved. They have been approved. So obviously at time of recording this introduction, uh, we now have emergency use authorization in the US. Uh, Health Canada has approved the vaccine. The UK has already started rolling it out over the last few days with, um, I wouldn't call it catastrophic consequences, but We've now seen, I mean, literally daily, there are reports coming out of healthcare workers um, suffering anaphylactic shock or landing up in ICU. We have a healthcare worker in Alaska now who's landed up in hospital, um, you know, Bell's palsy people in the trials, and the list keeps on going on. So um, in addition to discussing um, the vaccines, we obviously focus heavily on the safety, the efficacy. We talk about some of the other vaccines and the history of vaccines. Uh, we also um, spend a bit of time talking about what emergency use authorization actually is and uh, whether or not you can mandate a vaccine under uh, EUA. Okay, um, this is something that I'm currently looking into in Canada. Um, is it legal to actually mandate these vaccines? And, you know, look, my, my hope at the end of this podcast is that all I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, based on everything that you hear today, and check out Alex's article. I've linked it here in the show notes. It's very in-depth. It's very well-researched. It's linked to all of the sources, the studies and whatnot. I want you to just ask yourself, you know, given the risks versus the benefits, 
Do you feel that this is something that you would take? And do you feel that this is something that you would give to your family? And most important of all, do you feel that this is something that should be mandated and the people that refuse to get it or the people that question it, should these people be penalized based on what we know? Okay, so I want you to keep that in focus in the back of your mind, the risk versus benefits, right? So what is actually going on out there with regards to COVID? Okay, and again, Alex is in the US, I'm in, in Canada here. So we kind of give our both, both of our vantage points from our respective countries. But I want you to really think about that, right? What, what is happening um, with COVID? What's happening with cases versus death rates? What's actually happening on the ground? And then you tell me after listening to this episode whether you think this should be mandated and people that question this should be penalized, okay? This is a very, very enlightening episode. I must say I learned a lot. There were some things that I got wrong that I was corrected on, which is great. Um, and I think that uh, you'll probably find um, that, that you will, uh, yeah, you, you're going to learn a lot on this episode. And as many of you know, we don't have any advertising on the show, but if you are a practitioner who is interested in gut health, if you are working in the nutrition space, uh, health coach, uh, functional medicine, uh, naturopath, uh, anything like that where you're seeing people, uh, I will just remind you of my Digestive Health Practitioner Masterclass. Uh, that is on the go. It is open for registration. You will have instant access to many of the protocols and things that I've developed over the last uh, 17 years. Um, we have now had close to 115 people enroll and um, practitioners are now using these tools, these strategies in their clinics, and they're already starting to see traction and getting results. So you can visit uh, www.holistichealthlive.com uh, to sign up and check out all the details. Of course, you can also just scroll down and uh, click the link in the show notes. So without further delay, I bring today uh, to the show, Alex Meyer. All right, so we are back with another episode. Um, welcome to the show, Alex Meyer. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alex. Thanks, Brett. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is, and honestly, I'm uh, after the article that I read that you uh, published, um, I'm even more excited to have you on the show. Um, I'll just give a bit of background for those people listening. Um, I asked Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, I said, you know, Jack, you've been on the show a bunch of times. Um, you know, I love you to death and everything, but is there anyone else that you would put forward if we were to talk about the COVID vaccines? And of course, he put your name forward. And then after reading your article, I was like, awesome. I'm super excited. So, um, Alex, for those people who don't know you and perhaps who don't know Children's Health Defense, maybe just give us a little bit of um, you know, what you do there and what Children's Health Defense does. Sure. So first, a little bit about me. And I'm going to first say right off the bat that I'm not speaking on behalf of Children's Health Defense. I'm a board member, a national board member and a board member of the new California chapter. I'm also the president of the board in California, but I'm appearing as myself, not on behalf of Children's Health Defense. But Children's Health Defense, we basically we sue companies who harm children with their products and mostly we focus on environmental harms. And so a lot of that focuses around vaccines, but we also do glyphosate for pyrophos and uh, 5G and other things like that. And my background, the reason I got into this work is because as an adult, I have an MBA from Kellogg at Northwestern and I was working at Apple 
and I was running a worldwide research group when I was 30. I got six vaccines before I went on a trip to Bali to go see my sister. And I collapsed two weeks later. I got a massive migraine headache. And suddenly, I month by month, was like one foot after another descent into disability, physical disability, and then finally brain damage. And at that point, I had to, you know, go to my boss at Apple and say that I needed a medical leave. And I've never been able to work full time since then. Wow, that is um, such a crazy story. And yeah. uh, I mean, you've obviously made a pretty significant recovery. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I enjoy a recovery of maybe 80 to 90% depending on the day. But it's a, it's a lot of management and you really need to take vaccine injuries seriously. If anybody had said anything to me that I could be injured by the vaccines that I took, I might have paused, I might have done some research, but I didn't do either of those things. Just went ahead and got six vaccines. And I like to say I got a seventh one that I call cognitive dissonance because it took me 13 years to figure out what had actually happened to me. Well, 13 years. And you know what? Uh, I mean, I think it's a great opening um, because when people think of, you know, the, the words anti-vaxxer, you know, we, we just hear that. That's such a, it's such a coined phrase. It's just so fraught with, um, with attachments that are just not really true at all. And I always like to say to people, you know, um, if you actually speak to people who are quote unquote anti-vaxxers, you'll find out that most of them are actually ex-vaxxers. And most of them either lost a child or they were permanently damaged themselves or lost a loved one or something happened to them. You know, they followed the system, they followed the recommendations, they trusted in the government, in the, the doctors, the pharmaceutical companies, and they kind of learned firsthand what the, what, what the dangers are. And, um, you know, I think longtime listeners to the show will know that we're no stranger to that conversation. Um, you know, we've had experts on here. We've had, you know, Del, Del Bigtree on here to talk about that and, and share some stats with us. So, um, you know, I, I think um, now more than ever is is Conversa this conversation needs to be had because um, we're going to talk today about COVID-19 vaccines. And um, at time of recording, uh, Health Canada just approved them uh, for the Pfizer vaccine uh, today or yesterday. Uh, the date today is December 10th um, for, for anyone tuning in. And um, we have now seen today or yesterday, this is all happening at the same time around the world, coincidentally or not, um, the UK is now has now rolled out its uh, mass vaccination program, and we'll talk a little bit about that. That's all happening right now as we speak. And of course, as we'll discuss today on the show, uh, Pfizer has also um, applied for emergency use authorization in the US. So this is all happening right now. And, uh, you know, you and I, Alex, um, we I think we kind of connected last week, and I said, can we expedite this and get you on the show today? right now. This is going to go out in the next few days. So um, I don't know where you want to start, but I think where I would like to start anyway is just let's just start with ground zero and kind of walk people into that emergency use authorization because I want to sketch out what is actually going on here. When we hear things like 90 to 95% efficacy, when we hear that things have been tested properly, that they've gone through safety studies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you peel back the veneer of all of that, um, it, everything is not as it seems, obviously. Okay. It's <laughs> Not at all. It couldn't actually be further from the truth. <laughs> Let me just say um, two more things about Children's Health Defense. Please. Is that our chairman is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he moved over from environmental work because he saw the problem with what we were doing to children with vaccines as a problem that was a hundred times worse than what we're doing to the environment. So that's, that's very serious. I mean, he gave up his life's work of the environment to work on this. And the second thing you mentioned earlier is there's a misconception that children's health defense is anti-vaccine, and that's not true. 
we are against any mandated medicine. Okay. Also good to know. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, uh, again, one of the sort of themes that we've always been about on this show, but, you know, really driving that forward in 2021 is body sovereignty, you know, medical freedom, body sovereignty, um, you know, right, right to autonomous, um, you know, state of being, right? Um, so I think that, uh, you know, again, a lot of people listening to the show, uh, they, they're very much in line with that. And uh, of course, that's why we're having this conversation today. So, um Let's start off with just something super, super basic. What is a vaccine actually supposed to do? Like, what's the purpose of a vaccine? That's a great question, Brett. So the purpose of a vaccine is to make your immune system, the part of it called the adaptive immune system, create antibodies. Those are made by your B cells. And a vaccine is supposed to make your B cells make antibodies to the antigen. And the antigen is the disease in the vaccine. And so at the very basic level, that's what a vaccine is supposed to be. And the reason we, we focus on what's called adaptive or humoral immunity, and those are synonyms, is that it's something you can measure. And uh, so when you get like an antibody test, that's a blood draw. If you have antibodies, uh, there's two types. One type is called IgM, which might mean that you're currently infected, but what they really are looking for is IgG antibodies, because that means that you've been exposed to a disease either naturally or unnaturally through a vaccine, and you've developed antibodies which are considered to be protective. Um, and we don't want to drill down too much on that in this show because the antibodies are actually not 100% protective. Right. But they're presumed to be. But I don't want to get down in that. Yeah, and, and we don't we don't need to. I mean, look, you know, I don't even want to get into antibody testing or anything like that. I think just from a very basic level. So then would it would it be logical then to follow that if we have those antibodies, we are we are perceived to be um, protected against another threat? Right. You know, so if I get exposed to the coronavirus and I have antibodies in my blood, I'm therefore protected because my immune system is now um, trained and it can identify what the, the threat is. I mean, that, that's the thinking behind it, right? Yeah, and the antibodies are very specific. So if the organism were to mutate, the antibodies would not be as effective. They would decrease in effectiveness by a lot. There's also something called T-cell immunity. That's the other side of our immune system. Yeah. And that's more general um, and there, we already have a, a very good population level of t-cell immunity to um, coronaviruses and sars viruses as it turns out mm -hmm. and just for those people who are listening that are maybe a little bit more um, learned or or knowledgeable in this um, of course the part that's being missed so far has been t-cells and that's actually the newer part of what people are talking about and uh, of course there's also cross immunity from previous SARS and coronavirus exposures um, that are now offering benefits for the current SARS-CoV-2. Uh, now for those of you who are also interested um, if you want to get a little bit more controversial uh, depending on when you're listening to this you can listen to my interview with Dr. Tom Cowan and uh, Sally Fallon from uh, the Contagion Myth and uh, you can dig into that and actually see um, talk about isolation of the virus purification of the virus and of course testing and all that good stuff we're not going to wade into that uh, today now um, the 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 second benefit of a vaccine and correct me if I'm wrong here is it also intended to stop transmission of a, of a contagion from one person to another is that what the intention is or or not theoretically yes but that would have to be only for vaccines that provide um, provide immunity 
that, um, that would prevent person-to-person transmission. By that, I mean like a tetanus vaccine, that's for personal protection only. That would not prevent person-to-person transmission, but theoretically like a measles vaccine is supposed to prevent person-to-person transmission. Okay. And so, of course, yeah, that's all theoretical. Um, and just for, we might as well just cut to the chase on that one. Um, I think both Moderna and Pfizer, which are the two vaccines we're going to focus on today, uh, they have said themselves that they do not know whether their vaccines prevent transmission. And of course, we're being sold the whole idea that the point of getting the vaccine is to actually stop the transmission from one person to another. Yes, that's the biggest misconception about the vaccine. Everybody talks about, oh, I want it to go back to normal. I don't want to wear a mask anymore. I don't want to do distancing. I want the restaurants to open back up. I want to go to the gym. I can't wait for the vaccine. And the vaccines are not being tested to prevent person-to-person transmission. In fact, Tal Zaks, who's the chief medical officer of Moderna, he said that to do that, to test for person-to-person transmission or the ability for the vaccine to block it, that is, it would take many years longer and probably five to 10 times the amount of money to do that. So they're not doing that. But that's why everybody's Mm. looking forward to this vaccine to quote unquote, get back to normal. But that's not going to happen if it doesn't prevent person to person transmission. And I kind of wonder to myself then, is this why, you know, Fauci et al are now saying that um, we're going to have to wear masks for the foreseeable future, right? I mean, our uh, health minister, health doctor, chief doctor, I don't even, I don't forget what her title is anymore. Um, but Dr. Teresa Tam here in Canada, you know, she's like, yeah, we got to wear masks for the foreseeable future, even after the vaccine, um, which, you know, that's kind of the, the smoking gun right there, right? It's not, it doesn't prevent transmission. Um, no, um, the, the vaccine doesn't, but masking doesn't prevent transmission of a viral disease anyway, because mask holes, even the smallest ones on an N95 mask are 0.3 microns and viral particles are less than half that size. It's like putting up a chain link fence to keep out a mosquito. So the masking is a false sense of security. It's a security blanket, you know, like Linus who carried his blanket around. Yeah. And look, uh, again, masks are not something I've never actually got into the whole mask debate. Just, just, um, I'm just like, Oh, whatever. I got to pick my battles and getting into fist fights online about masks. I'm like, I could care less. But, um, for anyone who wants to question that, um, if the masks work so well, then how come the cases are going up? Um, there you go. Well, there you go. Right. So anyway, you can ponder that on your own. Um, <laughs> So I want to move into uh, the, the next point here. And I do want to just spend a little bit of time talking about efficacy because I think it's important for us today to really steel man um, or steel person um, our, our argument here. Um, when they talk about efficacy, right? So, I mean, now we've established what the two points are, right? We want to get antibodies, great. Um, and of course, we want to hopefully theoretically stop transmission, which we know is not happening. So how do they actually measure efficacy then like how, how do we know that a vaccine is working or it's not working or it you know perhaps you can enlighten us on that so the way they're measuring efficacy in the clinical trials is through a challenge test and in the challenge test the people who are vaccinated and the, those who receive the placebo are out in the world and when they get symptoms they call the study operators and say hey i've got symptoms should I come in and get tested by PCR to see if I test positive for the virus called SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus said to cause the symptoms that are called COVID-19. And so they're looking for about 160 people out of 30,000 in the Moderna trial or 43,000 in the Pfizer trial to get symptoms and then see, you know, how the cards stack up in each of those groups. But what's interesting is that, of course, both vaccine manufacturers are reporting the results in terms of relative risk. 
So they're saying it's, you know, 95% effective for the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. But if you look at absolute risk, it's, it's a lot different story. So mm. for, if you look at absolute risk, I'm just going to do the Moderna numbers right now. Yeah, please. Yeah, there were um, 90 in the placebo group who got symptoms and tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. And um, so that's an attack rate, that's their terminology, of 0.6%. And there were five in the vaccine group who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. And so that's an attack rate of 0.03%. So it's, quote unquote, saved about a half a percent of people from testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. And the reason I'm not saying that it saved people from COVID-19 is because, again, that's a set of symptoms. And in these clinical trials, they are not testing for all the other causes of the same symptoms that they say are SARS-CoV-2. So... You come in with a cough, a fever, um, chills, maybe a headache, and they're not testing you for any other illnesses. They're not testing you for flu. They're not testing you for tuberculosis. They're not testing you for pertussis, which are all known pathogens that can cause the same symptoms. So that's why when we're looking at these trials, we can't say it's a vaccine to prevent COVID-19 because that's just symptoms. Right. And, and of, co of course, then if we want to double down on that, um, you know, the testing, is it even specific? Like even if you do a PCR test, is it actually specific for SARS-CoV-2 slash, you know, COVID-19? And I think you can go onto the CDC website, onto the FDA, onto Health Canada, onto any government organization, and they'll pretty much tell you, you know, we found this out in April already, that that's not the case. I mean, you can be clinically diagnosed with COVID-19 without any lab testing whatsoever. That's uh, right. That's right. Know, Yeah, and even if your PCR is positive, there's this great paper. Um, it's called the Corman-Drosten Review, and it's a group of researchers that reviewed the initial paper that established the PCR test that was written by Corman and Drosten, and they found myriad problems with that test and an abundance of false positives. And so in a scenario where you have a test that delivers a lot of false positives and you are not testing people for the other 1,400 other pathogens that can cause the same symptoms, you're... you're you're really not getting good data at all. It's co called confirmation bias. When you assume that anyone with symptoms has SARS-CoV-2 just because they tested positive, that's confirmation bias. Yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, I have kids um, and a lot of people with kids, you know, that's what we're experiencing with schools right now is, oh, you know, you get a, you, you know, you get the sniffles or you get the, the symptoms. Oh, it must just be, you know, COVID-19, of course, you know. So, of course, uh, you know, everything now, there's a lot of things that are now being labeled erroneously, I would say, as COVID-19. I mean, the flu just disappeared this year, which is amazing. Um, so. <laughs> Real yeah. step forward for us uh, in that department. You know, I mean, like it's almost zero flu cases this year. Uh, COVID-19 cures the flu. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> And all those diagnoses are going to COVID-19. Right. Right. So... Um, so, so coming back to the whole efficacy side of things, it seems like there's no clear endpoints that they're really measuring. And not only that, there's no clear line. It's not a straight line of A plus B equals C. And we can say that 90% of the time A plus B equals C and 10% of the time it doesn't. But um, the, the other thing I think is very important with um, just with efficacy is, is obviously um, you know, the, the reporting of the data, right? So, you know, you mentioned some numbers before, I think it was 44,000 in the Pfizer. Um, yeah. And what was it in Moderna? How many people was that? 30. Okay. 
Yeah, but but they're not actually reporting on the thirty thousand and the forty four thousand, right? So no. what are they actually reporting on? They're reporting on the pool of people who are the first ones to call in and say they have symptoms, and then they'll either come to the study site and get tested, or I just heard in the Verbac meeting this morning, and that's the FDA advisory committee that's meeting to approve Pfizer vaccine in the U.S. right now, that they are allowing these study participants, if they call in with symptoms, to go to their local lab and get tested with, I don't know what PCR test. And that was a shock to me because the PCR tests, they all have different cycle thresholds. And if you turn up the cycle thresholds or amplifications to 40, almost everybody has COVID. Yeah. <laughs> down to 16, no one has it. So they're allowing people to test in different labs, which I think is a big confounder for their studies. Like I thought until this morning, they were all going to the, to the study site to get tested with the same test, but they're not. And, and, so, and uh, yeah, and, and sorry, I, I will add to that as well, that if anyone is doubting that, um, you know, you can look at the Journal of Virology here in Canada and go and look around the world. I mean, the, the, the standard um, cycle thresholds uh, for amplification is around 38 to 45. That's what most countries are running them at, um, whereas you should really be running at 25 or below. And even then, you know, are you actually infectious? Are you contagious? No one really knows. I mean, you're, you're really just picking up viral fragments or DNA fragments at that point anyway. Um, and this is why Carrie Mullis has said, you know, do not use the PCR test to diagnose infectious disease. I mean, and he was the inventor who won a Nobel Prize um, for, for those people who might not know who Carrie Mullis is. Um, That's right. Yeah, Carrie Mullis is the inventor of the PCR test, which he actually conceived of on an acid trip by his own admission. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he passed away, unfortunately, in August uh, 2019, and he did say that the PCR test that we're all using, and that's the one where you know, they go up the nose and with a nasal swab, that that should not be used for diagnostics. It's a lab amplification technique. And what Brett was just talking about in terms of amplifications or cycle threshold, the cycle threshold is the really important number to look at because after a certain number of amplifications, and um, you can amplify the sample in the lab 40 times, but then below that they have like a cycle threshold at which they're gonna read the results. And so the cycle threshold is always less than the number of applications. But if their cycle threshold is 35 or higher, according to Dr. Fauci, what you get is junk. You, you find out that somebody is probably not infectious because what you get is called replication incompetent DNA, meaning that it can't multiply under culture in a lab. And so a person who tests positive with too many with too high of a cycle threshold is not actually infectious. And so most of the tests are set so high that most of the people testing positive are not infectious. Yeah. Well, kind of makes you wonder then why 85% of people are asymptomatic, right? Just saying, you know, just going to put that out there, you know, wonder. Maybe you're asymptomatic because you're not actually sick. But, but anyway, I'll let, leave people ponder that as well. Um, all right, so let's uh, move our conversation forward here and um, let's really dig into what I think is is probably on everyone's mind right now. And one of the things is the safety issue, right? I mean, the safety issue is something that we're going to pretty much spend the rest of the podcast talking about. But um, there's a silver silver lining to everything, right? And I think that the silver lining for me, and you know, I'm sure you will affirm this, if you've been in the space for long enough, you know, I've been looking at vaccines for the better part of 20 years and um, long before we were anti-vaxxers or whatever label you want to throw on us. And what I'm really happy about right now is that because the COVID-19 vaccine is affecting 
everyone, you now have more people that are looking at vaccines in general. You now have more than half of the population that are very hesitant to take the COVID-19 vaccines, whichever one they are, to, for, for that matter. And I think that's a very good thing. I think it's a good thing that everyone is now questioning because, you know, as I've discussed with other people on the show before, if you want to say that we're anti-science, if you want to say that we're conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers or whatever, I, I encourage you to actually look at the science. I mean, that's what I look at. And if you actually look at the science, you will see that the science is very, very shaky. It's very dubious. And I won't even get into the ulterior motives and agendas that are going on behind the scenes. We don't even need to go there today. So, um, Let's kick things off with, uh, first of all, um, the, uh, where do we start? Let's, let's start with mRNA. Okay, so that, that's obviously the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. That's what's being approved. And really, they're at the front of the line right now. Let, maybe, um, what is the technology behind that? What, what exactly are we doing with mRNA vaccines? Yeah, that, sound, that stands for messenger RNA. And the, the vaccines are, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines are designed with mRNA. It's a new technology for vaccines, which has never been used in a vaccine before. And it's funny to me that vaccines are classified as biologics, yet Moderna and Pfizer are allowed to go forward with an mRNA vaccine that doesn't seem to have anything biological in it. It's a synthetic sequence. And when that's injected into you, it's designed to make your cells manufacture what's called the spike protein on the coronavirus. And the spike protein is that thing that makes it look like a crown when you look at the virus in 2D. And so it makes your cells, number one, manufacture the spike protein. Number two, it relies on your immune system then to do something else, which is to make antibodies to the spike protein. Hmm. So we're basically programming our cells to make these proteins. I mean, that, that's kind of what our nucleus does. That's what our cells do normally for hair, skin, nails, enzymes, hormones, all the proteins in our body. So, I mean, as a, as a, as a clinician, as someone who understands this stuff, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, what if, the, what if the instructions go wrong and we start malfunctioning with the creation of proteins, generally speaking, whether that's my connective tissue or whether that's, you know, my hormones or skin, hair, nails, whatever it is. I mean, is, is that something that's, that's a potential problem here? Oh, it's, it's a frightening possibility. Yeah, there's two major side effects that we're looking for. One's called pathogenic priming, where your body can start to make antibodies against yourself. It's basically an autoimmune disease. And there's some scientists, like an ex-scientist um, at Pfizer, he was an executive at Pfizer, who's come out and said, that one of the proteins your body's gonna manufacture is so similar to the placenta that your body might make antibodies to the placenta, which could make women infertile. So that's highly, highly wow. And then another one is called antibody dependent enhancement or ADE. And that's when the antibodies are improperly formed. And in that case, it actually does the opposite of what a vaccine is supposed to do. And it acts like a Trojan horse where um, the material can get inside the cell and actually go into a constant state of inflammation and production of, of the spike protein, I, I think. But it's, it's a constant inflammation because the stuff gets into your cell. 
Wow. And, and look, um, I, I think it's probably a good moment. So I just want to sidestep for one second here for, because I should have probably said this before, but um, the, the safety studies, we have not actually gone through the proper safety studies. So when Alex and I are talking like this and we're saying like, there's a possibility or there's a couple of studies, you know, we would like to have seen them done these studies over a period of five or 10 or 25 years as they have done supposedly with all the other vaccines. But unfortunately now with Operation Warp Speed, we are now charging forward here and uh, we're less than a year to manufacture. So normally a vaccine, even if it's rushed, such as the MMR, is five and a half years um, to market. Okay, so I just want everyone to understand that. So when we're talking about safety studies and talking about safety, um, Captain Obvious here, you know, front and center is that there is no solid safety data. So we're now speculating, but also we're ha- we have to draw from the little bit of evidence that is now floating around. Um, you know, so anyway, I just think it's important for us to put that out there. And of course, if someone's listening to this a year from now, um, well, we might have a lot more data. Who knows? Okay. So, um, so those are quite concerning. I mean, if you think about it, right, like being in, actually bringing things into the cell. I mean, the whole point is to try and keep viruses and pathogens out of the cell so that they can't replicate inside. Um, so that's kind of concerning. And of course, then, if your protein instruction um, machinery, if you want to look at it like that, if that goes awry, I mean, that, that to me just opens the door to a whole host of other things. Um, now, one of the big things that comes up, I mean, you mentioned pathogen priming. Perhaps if you can explain to people in very lay terms, like, what is pathogen priming? What does that mean? Pathogenic priming is an autoimmune condition where the body starts to make uh, antibodies that could um, react to any of your own tissues, like the placenta. That was the example I gave. Okay. And of course, this could, you know, I think there were some early studies um, uh, that I remember Dr. Jack was publishing stuff like that. I think it was... um, yeah, pathogen priming. I mean, I remember him talking about that in June or July or possibly even earlier than that. That was a big concern. And I think, um, again, for those people, I'm not a scientist at all, I'm not a doctor, but for those people who are perhaps a little bit more learned, um, there are what are called epitopes that we share with the virus itself. So a lot of the human proteins um, we share with the coronavirus proteins. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but of course, then once you introduce that, you know, much like a food allergy, right? So you eat, um, I don't know, you eat gluten for example, and gluten is a long protein chain that's found in wheat and rye and barley. But if you, if you take snippets of that protein chain, what it's going to do is you're going to have those same snippets in your joints or your you know, blood-brain barrier or anywhere else. So the immune system then is going to focus on the snippets in the gluten, but it's also going to focus on any other snippets in your body. And that's actually one of the mechanisms for autoimmune disease, generally speaking, you know, for, from a food allergen uh, perspective. So I can totally see how how um, you know these uh, the, these these fragments can um, really trip up the immune system and cause it to become uh, dysfunctional. Yeah, I, I'm Dr. Um, James Lyons-Weiler, I, he has a, a genetic analysis program called Blast, and in it he found that of all the sequences in SARS-CoV-2, not, there's only one I think out of more than 30, almost 40 sequences that doesn't have human DNA attached to it. So all the other ones if you're injecting a vaccine into someone, you could be asking them to make antibodies to those human proteins that haven't been purified out of the vaccine. And that's highly concerning, as you're saying. In fact, you know, a lot of people don't understand the mechanism of action of the harm of vaccines. And 
I like to go back to the fact that everybody has heard of antibodies and antibodies are how you know if somebody has food allergies or, or perhaps asthma and antibodies are how we know if somebody has autoimmune disease. Well, vaccines make your body make antibodies, right? And the problem is that there's all sorts of stuff in the vaccine, in normal vaccines that um, I'm not talking about the mRNA ones necessarily, but in every other vaccine, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there and your immune system doesn't know what you're supposed to make antibodies to. So if you're injected with hepatitis B vaccine, there's 500 times more yeast in it mm. as hepatitis B antigen. And so what's your immune system supposed to think? Like, oh, it looks like I'm supposed to make antibodies to the yeast, not the hepatitis B. So that's what we're talking about here is that your immune system doesn't know what the target is to make antibodies. It can make antibodies to anything that's injected into you. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, on a very surface level for those people who are, who are maybe, um, you know, m maybe not uh, as familiar, vaccines are designed by nature to trick your immune system. That's the whole point of a vaccine, right? It's like, if you want to talk about live attenuated, um, you know, vaccines or whatever, the, the traditional type of vaccine, I mean, it's such a low dose, um, you know, it's, it's diluted, 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 but the whole idea is to elicit a, a, an immune response and to trick your immune system into thinking that you're sick to produce antibodies, right? And of course, then people, you know, sidebar here, but people will say, oh, homeopathy, what a bunch of quackery. And it's like, well, homeopathy is also just diluted. It's pretty much exactly the same in many ways, but just super clean. You know, that's all. Yeah. And in the Pfizer vaccine that's about to be approved this morning, it might already be approved, except that I'm talking to you and not looking at the news. <laughs> <laughs> they put a substance in there called M-neon green, which is a day glow marker. And that has unknown antigenicity also. People can make antibodies to that. And I also don't know why in an intramuscular injection, we would need to have something that's neon green injected into us. And then um, there's also something called PEG that's in this lipid nanoparticle that surrounds the mRNA. And 70% of people already make antibodies to PEG. And so we don't know if that'll cause you know, severe allergic reactions or, um, you know, is something worse when or make the vaccine less effective wow um yeah i, I mean peg you know po as polyethylene glycol if i'm not mistaken i mean that's used in a lot of cosmetics um i think it's even used in some food products to to be honest there's all different kinds of pegs um I, I'm, I'm familiar with it more in the cosmetics side of things um and of course a lot of people have reactions to personal care products and cosmetics and whatnot so which brings me to another point here um you know the whole allergy side of things you know we're talking about autoimmunity but autoimmunity is is in some senses in a very rudimentary way it's it's allergy to self you that's know right. it's you being allergic to yourself right and yeah. uh, what's interesting now yeah go ahead sorry oh it's all yeah allergies and autoimmune disease are all antibody mediated and you know that's what vaccines are designed to do so again going back to my point of you know what is the biological mechanism for which vaccines harm people they're designed to make our bodies make antibodies yeah yeah. Well, and uh, what's interesting, I mean, very ironically here, um, again, we're recording December 10th, and this is day two, possibly even day one of the UK rollout of their mass inoculation program. That's what they call it. And um, already we've had reports of people having anaphylactic shocks. Um, they And now the government, of course, you know, uh, they're like, well, you know, we expected that, um, you know, yeah, yeah, we expected it. And it's like, did you though? Because have you actually studied it? Like, and now they're saying, you know, this, this this is completely crazy to me, but they're saying, oh yeah, anyone who has a history of, uh, of, of serious allergies should not take the vaccine. And I'm like, okay, let's back up a step. 
how do how do you know that? I mean, like if I'm having uh, delayed type reactions, right? So I'm just going to put my clinician's hat on here for a minute. Most food reactions or most food allergies, right? An allergy is normally an immediate reaction mediated by IgE antibodies. It's immediate within half an hour, 45 minutes. That accounts for 10 to 15% of food reactions, okay? The bulk of food reactions are actually delayed reactions, which can be anywhere from four hours to four weeks, after you ingest something. So there's a ton of people. And of course, the symptoms that revolve around that, most of them are not GI. Most of them are not, you know, you don't know that you're reacting to that. So I suspect that there's a whole bunch of people walking around out there that actually do have antibody-mediated food reactions and not technically allergies, according to an allergist. So you got to wonder, I mean, we are literally rolling the dice here. And if you don't know that you have a serious allergy, what what do you do? I mean, how do you, Right. it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, and I have to just stop myself there because I don't have any more to say, or I don't have a good answer. You know, I, I think the UK is right to issue that guidance to be not get the vaccine if you have allergies. And a lot of people don't know that allergies are a sign that you're having negative reactions to vaccines. I don't know of any other cause of allergies, maybe like a black mold exposure or something, but vaccines are the only thing I know of that actually causes allergies in people. And in fact, al- vaccines are so good at causing allergies and asthma that that's how they create lab mice and lab rats that have wow. allergies and asthma. They inject them with a tetanus vaccine or just plain old aluminum and they can create allergies and asthma and mice and rats in the lab. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like how, how do people think they get allergic mice or asthmatic mice? Is somebody, you know, in a white coat going around <laughs> for the wheezing mouse? No. <laughs> lab. And yeah. they do it so that should give you a clue that vaccines are designed to cause antibodies which cause allergies and autoimmune disease yeah well um you know let's let's uh, bring our attention to something else you know if we want to test safety um you know from a very rudimentary sense surely we have a control group we have a group that we're giving the vaccine to we then would track and monitor them to see what the reactions are um and let's just you know play nice here Uh, maybe we track them for six weeks um, and we want to see what's going on um now in order to have those two control groups, you obviously have to con- you have to pull all the variables together. You know, you have to eliminate as many variables as possible. So perhaps let's speak to that because, as far as I know, we don't really have a true control group. Um, one, and as far as I also know, the population that we're testing on these forty thousand people. You know, forget about that. We're only reporting on you know less than a hundred of them. Um, but the fact of the matter is that they're scattered all around the world. There is so much ethnic and racial diversity. There's geographical diversity, there are socioeconomic diversity. I mean, the list just keeps on going on and on. So perhaps you can speak to those two things, you know, an actual bona fide control group and then all of these confounding variables. Right. Well, I mean, there, there is a control group, uh, thanks to ICANN, which is Del Tree's group. They put pressure on the vaccine manufacturers to actually use a true saline placebo in the clinical trials. The only exception to is the Oxford AstraZeneca trial where they're using a meningitis vaccine called MEN-ACWY as their, as their placebo, as we like to call it. But the rest of them, Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, and GSK Sanofi, they're all actually using a true saline placebo. But what's messing up the results, as I heard this morning in the FDA Verbach meeting, where they're right now deciding on the Pfizer vaccine, is that they're allowing anybody in the placebo group to cross over 
and get the vaccine. So they are destroying their placebo group. And I bet most people who are in the trial wanted to be in the trial to get this supposed protection from the vaccine from COVID-19. And so they're saying for their efforts and the risk they took being in the trial, they should be allowed to cross over whenever they want and get the vaccine. So the number of people left in the placebo group is going to be quite small indeed. So, okay. Wow. So why, I mean, why would they allow that? I'm, I'm just sorry. Like I get why as an individual, if you really believe you've got your full heart and soul and faith in vaccines, of course, I understand why you would want to move into the other group, but as a as a scientist, I mean, this is look. The, we have never been here before in terms of humanity. Like this is the biggest crisis in modern history that we've ever faced. Um, whether you want to call it a real pandemic, a fake pandemic, a pandemic, a scam pandemic, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like we're faced with this because every single person on this planet is now faced with this problem, right? So you would think that in an effort to win over public trust, that in an effort to just clear the record and say, hey, man, we're here, we're developing a vaccine, we're going to save humanity, coronavirus is going to be done, here we go, win for science. Wouldn't you make sure that you just control all of these things to the absolute nth degree to make certain that when you roll this out to seven and a half billion people, everyone can look at it and go, man, you guys did a good job let me roll up my sleeve. Like, that's what you would think, right? So why, why are we dancing around all this stuff? That's a, that's a great question, Brett. I, gosh, I can't answer that. I mean, if only you and I were running the clinical trials and if we were employees of Moderna and Pfizer, things would be a lot different. Well, I think that, um, you know, look, we're having this conversation and we're not the only people having this conversation. And the more that time rolls on, the more shaky everything gets. The, the, it, it's all starting to unravel. It's all starting to fall apart. And what's crazy is that we're pushing all of this forward. You know, I want to still talk more about safety, but we're pushing all of this stuff forward for, you know, here in Canada, I'll just give you Canadian stats, 98.5% of people that have died from COVID, with COVID, with COVID-related issues, whatever, 98.5% of people have been in long-term care homes or nursing homes, and they've been elderly. Okay, what that equates to here in Canada is roughly just over 600 people in the whole country that have died with COVID. Okay, right. no lab testing confirmed. 600 people out of 38 million people. Okay, like here we are talking about this stuff. Why? I don't even know how this is an option at this point. Like, why are we so insistent that we've hired the military? We've got a general paying him 20 grand a month to like strategically roll all the stuff out. And again, I don't want to get into the sinister, you know, agenda here. But when you think of it on the surface like that, it none of it makes sense. Like, it's just not it's not adding up. No, it doesn't add up at all, Brett. And I worked with a team that was working really, really hard on these reporting irregularities and the perverse incentives to report deaths as COVID-19 deaths when they really weren't. And there's a double standard. No other infectious illness is reported in part one, line three of the death, death certificate, but COVID-19 is. And what that means when you put it there, it's the cause of death. And what's supposed to go on that line is the longest lasting underlying condition that led to that death. And so there are some researchers at Johns Hopkins who pulled the CDC data recently. And, you know, Johns Hopkins had to come out with a statement disqualifying everything they said on, on very shaky scientific grounds, I may add. But what they found is all the, most of the COVID diagnoses is nothing more than diagnostic substitution for heart failure. I mean, it's, okay. uh, yeah, if you, <laughs> it's like a one-to-one -one trade-off. 
Yeah, and look, I mean, this, you know, you're sitting in the US, I'm sitting in Canada, like this is not exclusive to our countries, like this is happening around the world. I mean, you know, people around the world have made the same conclusions, doctors, nurses, you know, scientists, I mean, Nobel Prize winners, like, there's a lot of people that are starting to have the same conversations and have been having these conversations for, for many months now. Um, right. You know. Yeah. And we're t- when you're testing someone who died in a motorcycle accident for COVID and then marking that as a COVID death, there's something wrong. That's actually illegal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, a lot of stuff that's illegal nowadays. Um, but anyway, let's not go there. Um, so I want to just pull out some of the things here from your uh, fr- from your article here. Um, some of the other, uh, you know, we've spoken about mRNA. We've spoken about autoimmunity. Are there other um adverse reactions that people should be like that have come that have come up i mean i've read some lists from the fda like literally like long you know three three column tables of of things is anything else that you want to talk about or share with us here definitely there have been some cases of transverse myelitis and ms in the trials and most recently there i think it was four cases of bell's palsy and for anyone who doesn't know what bell's palsy is i've actually had it i had it on and off for 10 years and it's part of my vaccine injury, it's awful. The left side of my face drooped down. Um, The outside of it was painful, but the inside was numb. Half my tongue would go numb. And it's an awful, awful condition. It's not just your appearance. You feel physically sick, like you've got the flu and you're exhausted. It's an awful condition. So if these vaccines are causing neurological problems like transverse myelitis, MS, Bell's palsy, We've got a pretty big problem because not very many people have gotten it. And with that many, with those side effects, that doesn't bode well for the total population. Yeah. And look, you know, people have, uh, and I'm, again, I'm playing devil's advocate and I want to hit some of these objections as they come up. You know, people start saying, oh, well, what about the COVID long haulers? You know, what about people that have recovered and sure they didn't die, but what about them suffering with 30% loss of respiratory and lung function for the rest of their life, blah, blah, blah. 100%. Like, look, you know, I, I, the, it's terrible. Whatever, whatever the case is, I mean, the fact that people died from COVID is terrible, right? No one wants that. The fact that you're a long hauler, no one wants that. But in medicine, you have to look at risk versus benefits. And if we're talking about, you know, how many people have been exposed to the virus, how many people have been diagnosed, how many people have actually died, you know, go and look at the data. I mean, the, the cases keep going up, the recovery keeps going up. The only thing that stays flat is the death rate for the most part, you know, and of course, then you just said, you know, classifications of deaths, testing, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of confounding variables. But I think now when you bring vaccines into the fold, you do have to say, well, look, if you're only reporting on data, you know, Moderna phase one, they they had 45 participants in that trial and they reported on 15. Don't know what happened to the other 30. Okay, I I don't know. Um, And if you look at the, the Pfizer, I think it was the phase three trials, you know, as we said, 44 or 43 and a half thousand people, but they only published data on 94 people or 92 people. So then out of those 92 or 94 or out of those 15, you know, and the Moderna trials, it was 20% of people had grade three medical reactions. That's right. You know, so when you scale this all up, this is the problem, right? When you scale it all up, you're now talking about distributing these vaccines to seven and a half billion people. Well, 20% of seven and a half billion is a lot more than 20% of 15 people. Exactly. You know. exactly. Yeah, and we're, I think we're definitely causing more illness in people who are going to get the vaccines than there ever was going to be with COVID-19. 
Yeah. And look, I mean, people like myself have said that since day one. And then when you double down with lockdowns, loss of business, you know, destruction of, of um, people's finances, their livelihoods, all this other stuff, mental health issues, alcoholism, suicide, I mean, just keep on going. Um, the response is greatly over-exaggerated relative to the perceived threats. I mean, I think that a lot of people are starting to see that now. Um, you know, uh, so coming back to this whole safety thing, um, any other issues that you that you have seen or that you've heard about that are starting to come out from these vaccines? Yeah, there were a couple deaths, in, I think, in the UK. I think that was from the Pfizer vaccine. I could be wrong. I have to go look at my notes. Or, do you know which vaccine that um, was? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure. Pretty, I'm pretty sure it was Pfizer. But if that were rolled, if it were two and based on the number of people who got the vaccine so far, that mean like um, 10 to 20,000 people in, in the US would die if everybody was vaccinated. Wow. Wow. And, you know, look, um, I'm going to publish, I'm going to put your article underneath this as well, because you've done a fantastic job at just linking things through, you know, so getting linking to the studies and whatnot. But, you know, I've been publishing and posting this stuff for months now, and it's all there. You know, I think that another, um, another report that I read, which was written by a nurse, um, I forget where she's from, was saying that you need out of every 237 people, right, that get vaccinated, only one person is actually protected. Right. Actually, so if you look at the attack rate from the, the Moderna study that I talked about, the attack rate, as they call it, in the placebo group was basically a half percent. It was 0.6 of a percent. And so what that means is since they're saving basically a half percent of people from testing positive for SARS-CoV-2, you'd have to vaccinate 200 people with a vaccine to save someone from testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. And that doesn't mean that they're preventing symptoms. It just means they're not testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. They have never proven that the virus SARS-CoV-2 causes the symptoms they, cause co they call COVID-19. They've never wow. proven that. And, and let, let, let's also just bear in mind here that the IFR, you know, the infection fatality rate generally, I mean, this is straight from the CDC, is 0.26%. Correct. You know what I mean? So we're, we're literally talking about like the, out of those 0.26%, we're now taking 200 out of those to get one person who's not going to test positive. I mean, it, it's just like diluted to the point of being statistically insignificant um, when you really get into it. And then layer on all of the side effects and all of the unknowns that we're talking about here. And you literally are rolling the dice, you, you know, whatever anyone wants to say. Uh, yeah. And with the quote unquote attack rate and, you know, older people, it's the 65 plus set with comorbidities. The CDC came out in I think it was March or April, and I think it was, it was, it was March. And they said that they knew that COVID-19 was going to be most deadly in people over 65 with comorbidities. And that is really concerning to me because guess what they knew also? People over 65 in the United States get Medicare. And so they can um, offer perverse incentives in Medicare patients who die and, you know, cause them to report the death as COVID-19 when it wouldn't be otherwise. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the death certificate reporting. And this is particularly bad in the over 65 set because the government has set up these perverse incentives to market as a COVID-19 death through Medicare reimbursements. Wow. Wow. And I mean, yeah, the list goes on, right? I know that they were getting incentives for ventilators and incentives for diagnoses and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, that was coming out in like April, May already, you know? 
starve the hospitals of all their other revenue. And then they said, oh, but if you diagnose COVID, you get $13,000. And if you put them on a ventilator, you get another 39000 So what's a hospital supposed to do when they need to stay in business? Yeah, chiching, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, now, just, um, you know, let's just, you know, staying on the safety side of things. Um, I think it's also important. I know a lot of people that are listening to this are quite knowledgeable in this area, but maybe, you know, there's people that are tuning in that are not. Um, it's also important to point out that a lot of the normal checks and balances with regards to safety protocols, safety testing, et cetera, were completely bypassed, you know, under the banner of Operation Warp Speed. You know, so a lot of these things were, were just um, bypassed. And, you know, even Dr. Paul Offit, you know, the, the godfather of vaccines, you know, he said straight up that, uh, you know, you, you're going to have to bypass animal safety studies, bypass large-scale population studies, and basically we'll find out how safe and effective it is once it's released to the population. Right. And they didn't actually bypass animal studies. That's kind of a misconception. They did do animal studies. They were testing for the right dosage level and they were testing for pathogenic priming, but the trials weren't very long and they were done in parallel to the human trials. So okay. do we have any, any data on that? Like, do we know what happened in any, any of those animal trials at all? Well, they reported that the data, it, that it went very well and that they had very high efficacy in all the animals and that none of them died and they didn't recover virus from the nose or the lungs. So the, the, the data from their animal trials made it actually look quite good. Okay. Well, I mean, I think all the data looks really good if you just look at it uh, uh, from the surface, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You have to dig deeper on these things. Yeah. Um, so... Let, let's bring all of this into focus. I mean, unless there's any other health issues, um, again, I'm happy to link to your article. I think you've covered a lot of the highlights, but if there are any other health issues that you feel you want to bring up, um, you know, please, you know, um, go ahead. Yeah, I just, they're really a, a high level of systemic events. So, you know, people who get the vaccine should plan to miss at least one day of work. If they get the vaccine, you're going to have fever, you're going to have chills, you're going to have a headache. And it's, it's not going to be very pleasant. And that happens in more than half the participants. Well, I think, aren't they worried? Because you got to get a, a booster shot, right? Um, like two or three weeks after. And now they're so concerned that the side effects of getting the shot on the first round are going to deter people from coming back for the second shot. That's right. Yeah. The side effects are worse after the second one. And they're also super concerned. And I heard this in the advisory committee on immunization practices meetings that I watched all summer, every month when they had them on the COVID vaccines. But they're very concerned that the healthcare workers who are um, slotted to get the vaccine first are going to have such negative reactions that it's going to scare everybody else off from getting the vaccine. And, you know, look, this is all, I mean, just hopefully at this point, I don't know how long we've been going for here, like maybe an hour or so. But the more I listen to this, the more I then have to wonder, you know, let's bring us into the next part of, of the segment here. The more you have to then wonder why we're pushing so hard to mandate it, right? We're mandating the stuff. We're, we're rushing it in. You know, let's talk about emergency use authorization and dig into that a little bit because, you know, I actually, um, funnily enough, I, I, I clued into um, emergency use authorization months ago when the whole hydroxychloroquine thing was going on, right? And everyone was like, oh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I had doctors slamming me and it doesn't work. And I'm like, but hang on. I looked at all the stuff and then I found this long article about the whole smear campaign. And then I realized, oh, you know what? Like you, you can't have a cure because if you have a cure, you can't do the, e, the EUA. And now it's kind of funny because I kind of forgot about that. And here we are um, looking at emergency use authorization. So, and I believe that's going on today. Is it right? 
Yeah, exactly. They're um, Pfizer's in with Verbac, which is an FDA advisory committee deciding whether or not to grant it an emergency use authorization, which is called an EUA. And Brett, you bring up a great point. So there are four standards in order to get an EUA. The first one is, you know, there has to be, you know, a, a public health emergency. And then the last one is the one you're talking about, which is that there can be no adequate, available and approved alternative. And what that means is that any drug or vaccine that would compete with these new COVID vaccines counts. And if any of them is adequate, meaning there's enough approved, meaning it's got full licensure and um, available, meaning people have access to it. If, if that is the case for any drug or other vaccine, no vaccines on Operation Warp Speed can get an emergency use authorization. So when we talk about hydroxychloroquine, that was so interesting because Children's Health Defense has a list of at least 66 studies showing hydroxychloroquine is effective against SARS-CoV-2 infection and that it should actually be used. And that unfortunately had to be quashed and, um, and marginalized as non-effective because otherwise these, none of these vaccines could even be in these meetings right now um, hoping to get approval under an EUA. If only hydroxychloroquine this would not be happening and they'd have to wait until full trials were done to get full licensure and full trials that usually it takes about 10 years to get a vaccine approved right well and that's what people are, are kind of forgetting here you know i mean normal vaccine development normal is at least 10 years at least but usually again according to dr poloff at 20 to 26 years that's typically what it's going to take if you want to do everything properly here we are not even a year in um and we're like ready to health canada just approved the pfizer vaccine they just said yep we're ready to go the uk just started mass inoculation yesterday or today i forget and of course here we are with pfizer sitting now down with the fda um applying for this you know i think there's also some other candidates that are probably worth mentioning you know ivermectin as well there's australian studies now showing that it's almost a 100% effective. Um, so we actually do have cures for COVID-19, you know, and I think we've had them for a long time now. Um, yeah, we, we absolutely do. But they had to be marginalized and said to, to not be useful just so these vaccines could get approved. And let me just point out something you just alluded to, which is that there's about two dozen vaccines on the market today. There's 16 on the childhood vaccine schedule. And then there's vaccines for rabies and tuberculosis that are not part of the schedule. And um, also um, a couple other conditions. But anyway, of all the vaccines that have been on the market and that were properly safety tested over 10 plus years, maybe 20, 26 years, as Paul Offit said, 66 of those have been pulled from the market, leaving only 24. Those were all properly safety tested and a lot of them were pulled safety issues. So if that many vaccines that were properly safety tested have been pulled from the market what do we think is going to happen to vaccines that have gone through Operation Warp Speed? What are the chances of those being pulled after injuring too many people? I think the chances are quite high. The chances are super high. And let's also remind everyone here that we're talking about an experimental vaccine that is an mRNA vaccine that has never, ever been approved for human use ever. Most of them barely get through animal trials. It would be the first time in our history that we ever got a coronavirus vaccine right. We've been trying for almost 20 years. We haven't got it right. The flu shot last year was 9% effective. On a good year, it's 40 to 60% effective, give or take. So, like, 
you know, you then have a virus that's mutating, right? So are we now also going to be looking at quarterly shots, you know, as, as things mutate? Like, are we going to have to get quarterly shots? Are we going to have to get biannual shots? Are we, you know, and I want everyone to really understand this right now. This is not just, oh, we're sitting here and we're just shooting the breeze and we all have a choice. You know, I drop the mic and we go home and we just decide, oh, well, I don't want it. You know, we're talking about staring down the barrel of a gun right now for mandates. We're talking about vaccination ID cards around the world. They're speaking about that right now. Okay. We're not going to make it mandatory in Canada, but if you don't get the shot, you're not going to be able to go to work. You're not going to go to the theater. You can't go to a sports game. You know, you can't get on a plane. So they're using forced coercion here to usher this in. And I think that the consequences are going to be very dire personally, right? And I've spoken with other people on this podcast. I do think that it's a genocide, um, to be quite frank. And I know that's a harsh word to use, but um, I can't see the benefit here, to to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, if people were literally, like if we were sitting here and it was Ebola with a 60%, you know, IFR, and people were dropping dead in the streets, I'd probably say, hey, man, I'll roll up my sleeve. Let's give it a go, you know? But that's not what we're dealing with here. Not at all. Not at all, you know? Let me just say that under an emergency use authorization, vaccines are considered investigational and it's technically illegal to mandate them. So believe you me, as soon as these guys get their EUA for Pfizer, Moderna, and the other ones, they will probably immediately try to apply for full licensure, but it's not until full licensure that they could think about actually mandating the vaccines. And according to the research that we've done so far with our attorneys, if an employer requires a COVID vaccine for you to work there, or, you know, if you're required to get one for some other reason, it's technically illegal under an EUA and you can sue them. Okay. And you know what? I think it's very, very important because obviously, you know, we're online here, we're in different groups and whatever, and you're starting to see people are panicking. I mean, I, I just saw it today. My employer is going to require it. I'm, an, I'm a pilot. You know, I've, I've heard pilots and, and flight attendants now say, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to get it. And I think this is going to, this is what it's really going to boil down to here is an invasion of privacy. It's medical freedom. Um, you know, here in Canada, we, we have what's called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is kind of like your constitution in a way, you know. And um, I mean, this just infringes on, you know, even if I opt out of getting the vaccine and I can't go to work, well, there's one thing, it's discrimination, like left, right and center. Um, you know, and, and I think that my concern here with all of that is is, you know, discrimination aside, is that you're going to have people, I mean, the amount of people that still believe right now, today, pre-pandemic, that vaccines are mandatory is quite frightening. The amount of people, they're just like, oh, well, the, the, the school said it's mandatory or the nurse said it's mandatory or the doctor said it's mandatory. So therefore, legally, it must be mandatory. And it's actually not. That's and I right. want to remind people of that. So you bring up a fantastic point. And I think I want to look into that here from the Canadian perspective as well. Um, yeah, I, I advise doing that. I look into the law in Canada as well. And that, that's a trick they've used for a long time, telling parents that vaccines are mandatory for the kids to go to school and that there's no, there's no opt-outs. That wasn't true for the longest time until about 2015 in California. You could always use a personal belief exemption in California, although the schools would mail parents these letters saying, oh, you have to get your mandatory vaccines. That wasn't true at all. You could just flip over a blue card, sign it, and say, you know, I don't want my kids to have those vaccines. And so it is this kind of posturing that they're going to be mandatory that's going to trick people into thinking they actually are. And that's highly concerning. And just so you know, no one has liability for these vaccines if they hurt you. No one. The manufacturer doesn't. The person who's administering the vaccine to you does not. The institution 
where you get the vaccine has no liability. There's going to be a compensation program in the U.S. through the PrEP Act. And you're going okay. to have that. But that, based on how that goes on a regular vaccine schedule in the U.S. with our vaccine court, that doesn't go very well. They deny two-thirds of claims. And you have to apply within three years of the injury. And you have to know that the vaccine actually caused your injury, which like in my case, it took me 13 years to figure out what had happened to me. I missed that window. And let me tell you another thing about vaccine injury. Not only is it physically destructive and it can destroy your, your brain and your cognition, it destroys your social life. It destroys you psychologically. People don't believe that it was a vaccine that hurt you. And it is very expensive out of pocket. I have spent more than $1.2 million to get my 80 or 90% managed recovery. And no one will help you. There is no medicine for you. There's no drug that's going to help you recover. And you cannot detox mRNA out of your body, unlike aluminum and the other vaccine um, adjuvants and other things in there. You can, over years, detox those out of your body. You will never detox mRNA out of your body. Never. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, you just uh, like, you just hit so many high points there. Um, you, you know, I, I, w- I want to remind people that don't know about this, that manufacturers have been exempt since 1986. This is not a new thing, right? And I'll remind people in Canada here that we don't even have a compensation program. All right. We're one of, we're, I think we're the only G20 country that has no compensation program. We don't even have a reporting system. Okay. So I sat in on a meeting, September, October, September, October 2019 at Toronto City Council. It was the Board of Health meeting. I went down there with a few hundred other people. We listened to a three-hour deposition of people that had been vaccine injured, that had lost children, the whole thing. And the Toronto Board of Health on that day, what they were doing was they were saying, we want to mandate vaccines. So this is pre-pandemic. This has got nothing to do with COVID. We want to make vaccines mandatory in in the city of Toronto. And from there, they would have to take it to the province or your state, okay? And um, it, at the same time as filing or voting for mandated vaccines, they were also voting on a reporting system. They were also voting on a compensation system. So it's like, great, we want to mandate them. We know that there's going to be injuries, so let's have a reporting system. And we know that we're going to have to give people money, so let's have a compensation plan at the same time, right? It's like, dude, are you kidding me right now? You know. And so here we are, fast forward, and all of these companies, I mean, this was the first thing that they did before they even filed for anything else. They all filed for no liability around the world. Right, right. You know, so... never happen. You should never have a product with no liability that's mandated on people. Imagine if you had a company where you had no liability and your product was mandated on everyone. I mean, it's, it's a gold mine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, I I manufacture cars and uh, most of them, you know, the steering wheel folds off and people drive into trees and kill themselves, but you know, it's okay. We'll make everyone drive that car. And uh, you know, if you fall into a tree, well, sorry, you know, it's not, not my fault. Um, Yeah. Crazy crazy and everyone has to drive that car you know you you have to buy it you have to drive it <laughs> the only recourse would be to come physically to the the ceo's house and you know, like burn their house down or something you know basically yeah wow well alex i think um you know that was awesome i think let's let's wrap it up uh, you know we covered what we wanted to cover unless you know please if there's anything else you feel like you want to bring up before i let you go um you know please do i i do want to say one thing which is all these public health officers that are ruling our lives they're not elected. They're not elected in the U.S. And Brett, correct me if I'm wrong, they're not elected in Canada no, either. Not at all, no. So 
how are we accepting to be ruled by people who we never elected in the first place, people who are not looking at the calculation, the balance between our economy and controlling whatever kind of outbreak this is? They're not doing the math. They don't care what it does to our economy at all, and we did not elect them. So I want to move to make uh, public health officers the next set of elected officials. Okay. And let me, you know, you bring up, you bring something up here and, and I want to sort of end off on a positive note as much as we can. What, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you know, I, I, I highly respect um, your, the organization that you're with and the work that you're doing and everything. And I think that your vantage point is, is very different from someone like myself because you're really looking at it, you know, up close. Um, do you think that we're going to win this? Like, do you think that, that, that we're, I mean, what do you think is going to happen here moving forward? I think the way to win is to keep these vaccines from becoming mandatory. And unfortunately, the only way to win if they become mandatory is to not do the things uh, where you'd be required to have one of the vaccines, unfortunately. So, you know, grow your own food and, you know, try to work from home as much as you can and do homeschooling. And I'm sorry to not end on a much more positive note, but we're basically going to have to hide until this hopefully blows over someday. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I think what I've said, you know, for many months now is what this is bringing into focus is, is it is bringing into focus um, the way that we built societies, the way that we live our lives. Um, the, it brings into question democracy. It brings into focus all of these things, you, you know, and um, as I've said previously on the show, um, you know, trying to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, um, you know, using a legal system or using whatever system, um, maybe it's time to just create a whole new system altogether. And, um, you know, I, th- I think the great bifurcation and the great divide is is kind of un- underway. Um, we're already seeing that. Um, I, I wish it wasn't true, but, you know, when people say unite, well, we've got um, a whole bunch of people that are uniting to fight the virus, and then you've got the other group that are uniting to fight the government and the pharmaceutical companies. Um, I kind of put myself in that camp, um, but I think it's kind of where we're going, you know, which is um, t- time will tell, you know, it's kind of crazy. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, if people are looking for a whole new system, we should really be looking much more to the natural alternatives and just to our own immune system, which is 99.98%, which is a higher effectiveness than the vaccines, I might point out, which they're saying are 95% effective in terms of um, relative risk, at least. And rely on our immune systems, and we can also strengthen our immune system. So vitamin C is a fantastic antiviral. Ozone is actually a fantastic antiviral as well. I mean, there's a doctor here, Robert Rowan, who went to Africa and cured five out of six cases of Ebola with ozone, intravenous ozone treatments. And it shouldn't be discounted. That is real stuff. There is peer-reviewed published literature behind vitamin C and ozone and zinc and any number of these other antivirals. And people think they're helpless. And this is a learned helplessness that the system is is putting on us to make everybody brainwashed into thinking the vaccine is the only protection we have against viruses. It's not. It's actually a joke. It is the last thing you should probably do. And I actually should just say, first, do no farm. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think you're spot on, you know, again, um, even just looking to Chinese medicine, you know, I had a, a pretty esteemed Chinese medicine professor on the show um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And then I kind of like, it made me look a little bit more to the Chinese data and to some of the research coming out of there. And, you know, there's so much in traditional Chinese medicine that it's so powerful, you know what I mean? And again, I won't get into the politics of all of that, but just suffice to say that nature offers us 
an abundance of tools, whether it's antiviral or immune boosting or immune strengthening or immune toning. I mean, agaricon mushroom is is one that comes to mind. Like the list just keeps on going. And so I think you're spot on with that. Um, you know, uh, eating correctly. You know, cutting back on the sugar, trying to get some rest, de-stressing. You know, these are all natural, innate things that we should be doing anyway. And perhaps the people that are getting sick and dying of all sorts of things, you know, it's it's chronic degenerative disease is what we're plagued by. You know, it's it's uh, this this is um, a product of modern society, a product of modern living, a product of processed foods, of a toxic environment. Like that is actually what's going on, and that's what's crippling us. And when you throw something like COVID nineteen or pneumonia or Ebola or whatever on top of that, um, you know, it's it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So if we can change all the other variables and improve our lifestyle and practice more of a you know. Well, there you go. You're at least um, 80%, you know, in a better position to be more resilient and to have a stronger immune system. That's right. That's right. um, As Robert F. Kennedy, uh, our chairman of Children's Health Defense, likes to say, these vaccine companies, they make 50 to 60 billion dollars a year on the vaccines, but then they make 500 billion dollars on all the remedies to treat the arthritis and and the allergies and all the other stuff that the vaccines cause. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. Well, Alex, thanks so much. It's been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, you know, keep up the great work that you're doing. And uh, obviously I'll share all of your details below the show notes um, today. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure and it's great to get to know you. I'll be following your work from here on out. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, for those of you tuning in, um, as always, um, you know, if you enjoyed today's show, subscribe, leave us a review, uh, share the episode, do what you got to do to help us get the word out there and to have more awesome guests on the show. And you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. 